If you will, take your scripture and keep it there in the Gospel of John, what our brother just read. That's where we're going to be today, just going through the scripture. So the title of the message is, Do You Hear What I Hear? Now, I'm not talking about the famous Christmas song that really wasn't about Christmas. It was about nuclear war, and you can Google that later, but I'm right on that. That's a little quote from the Kennedy administration, FYI. But I'm not talking about that song. I'm, I'm just asking the question, do you hear what I hear? Do we hear what Jesus is saying? So often, my wife and I will go to meet with someone, have a conversation, and we'll get home and start talking about the conversation, start talking about what was said and what was done, and I will replay the events in my mind and out loud to her, and as she listens to me, she will say, that is not what they said. And I'll say, what do you mean? That's exactly what they said. And she'll say, no, that's not what they meant at all. Husbands, have you ever had this happen where you're talking with people with your wife present and you think you hear it one way and it's obviously another way? I'm always thankful my wife is with me. I would have misunderstood about 90% of life had the Lord not placed her there to tell me that is not what they meant. It's not what they said. That was not the way they intended it. What's amazing to me is that two people can be in the same conversation and they can walk away hearing two different things. They can wrongly or rightly interpret. Now, when it comes to Christ, it comes to our faith, it comes to the Gospels, the question that may come into our heart is this, am I rightly hearing Jesus? Am I interpreting correctly what Christ has said? We all need assurance. We all need confidence in the faith. And what this text is going to do for us, it is going to give us confidence and assurance if we have truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I did not say believe in. You do not believe in Him. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe on His works. You believe on His righteousness. You believe on His ability to keep the law of God that you and I could not keep. We do not believe in. We believe on another. Our righteousness is alien. It is imputed. It is given to us through Jesus Christ. Now, how do you know that you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what is given to us in this text. Jesus confronts Jewish leaders. Now, as he confronts them, he shows what they did not have. They did not have a proper understanding of Christ. They were not hearing what he was clearly saying. But in that confrontation, as he speaks... To these leaders, clearly we see what it means to have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. There are four ways we know that we are accurately interpreting, that we can confidently have assurance, and that we are believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, 
the first piece of evidence the Holy Spirit gives to us that we are truly believing on the Lord is this. We are willing to respond to the light, to the light. Now, I want to explain that a little further. But to talk about the light, Jesus begins here talking to this, these Jewish leaders in chapter 5, verse 30. And he lets them know, okay, I'm God. Now, just to pick up in the middle of this entire chapter. We've been in chapter 5 now for several weeks. The Jewish leaders were angry with Jesus because he was breaking their Sabbath and he was claiming to be none other than God. Based on those two issues the Jewish leaders had with Jesus, he begins to defend himself and he makes the startling claim, I am God. Now, what evidence could Jesus give when he made the claim, I am God? Now, this is the evidence that we are coming to in verses 30 to verse 47. Jesus lays out four facts of evidence and witness that testify that he is not a quack who has come proclaiming to be God, but that he is indeed from God. Evidence number one is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is described as one who was a lamp that brought light. Now notice, if you will, in the text, verses 32 to 35, there is another who bears witness about me. In other words, there is another besides myself. I'm not the only one saying I'm God. The other one that bears witness about me, and his testimony is true, look at verse 33, is John. This is John the Baptist. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. This was the motivating factor of everything Jesus was doing. He was proclaiming this truth so that these people listening to him could hear the truth and interpret it correctly and be saved. Now, notice verse 35, describing John, he says he was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, he was a burning and a shining lamp. He was bright. Now, what do lamps do? They, they, they do what all light does. Light attracts. If you're in total darkness and you see a faint light, that light will guide you and attract you. If it's a moth, that moth will be attracted to the light. Remember the old bug zappers that we used to have because the bugs were attracted to the light? Light does that. When it burns, it attracts initially. Now, when John began his preaching ministry proclaiming the coming of Jesus Christ, witnessing that the Messiah was coming, at first, his light that was burning was very attractive. People would come out to where he was. They would listen to him preaching. All of his preaching was centered around three things. Number one, he proclaimed national repentance to the state of Israel. He said, you need to repent. It doesn't matter that you came from Abraham. It doesn't matter that Moses was your lawgiver. You need a savior. Secondly, what he would do when he would preach is he would say, okay, now you need to get baptized. The Jewish people would baptize proselytes, 
Gentiles, bringing them into Judaism. You ever wonder where baptism came from? Well, that's where it came from. The idea was that if you were a Gentile and not a Jew, and you wanted to become a Jew, then you had to wash yourself in a ceremonial washing to show how dirty you were, and now you were getting cleaned up to come into Judaism because you're a dirty Gentile pig. And then the third thing that John the Baptist would preach when he preached to the people out in the desert was not only national repentance and not only baptism, but he told individuals, you have to turn to Christ. You have to lay aside your sin, and you have to flee the coming wrath. Now, at first, this was good news. But what John began to do is he went from preaching to meddling. Now, I used to have a little old lady that would come up to me about once a month, and she'd say, Preacher, you done gone from preaching to meddling. You stepping on toes. And this is what the gospel will do. There's a lot of people that will come to church. They will sit under preaching, but they're fine as long as the light is attractive. But what the light is going to do is the light is going to reveal, reveal. And that's where this gets sticky. You see, just as in John's day, there were people that came out to hear him preach. And they said, you're a pretty amazing guy wearing your camel hair and being out here in the desert and baptizing all these people that want to come into the faith. That's pretty amazing. But when John began to get brighter and turn the light on sin things began to change. You know how John's life ended? His head was literally put on a platter. That's right. There was a ruler in Israel appointed by the Romans. His name was Herod Antipas. And the Gospel of Mark records this story where Herod Antipas had come into an illegal marriage. He had married his brother's wife. He took her. He had an affair. It was adultery. And so he wanted to keep her. He liked her. And so Herod Antipas threw a party, and he asked his new wife, what do you want at this party? And she said, of all things that you could give me, I want the head of that John the Baptist on a platter. And so you know what he did? Herod Antipas had John in jail. He went and got John. He had him beheaded. He had his head put on a platter, and he delivered it to his wife. Why? Because John dared to speak to authority that they were in sin. He dared to say what no one wanted to hear. He stood up for truth. I'm going to tell you, that's where the light always goes. Now, you can be like us. We like the light when it conceals. Sometimes when we're having people over, I'll tell the kids, now, don't turn on the big lights in the den. Just keep the lamps on. They'll never know that we didn't dust. So if you come over and you see a lot of lamps, you just forget I just said that. And you just play along. But don't act like you don't do it. Right? They won't see it. It's dark. They won't see I didn't cut the grass. It's dark. Thank God there's a little bit of light, but not too much. And so we like the light momentarily. It's burning, it's shining, it's attractive for a season. But the brighter that light comes, the more difficult and introspective and very clear all the nicks and dings and dust begins to become apparent in our life. And that is exactly what will happen with Christ. 
Christ says, this is what happened with my forerunner, John the Baptist. He was a light. You liked him for a while. But the problem was, is that as the light began to grow brighter and brighter and the conviction began to get stronger, you did not want that. And so you ran away from that and you did away with the light. Now, let me make this practical to you and me. How do you know that you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? You respond to the light of Jesus Christ. The light that John was preaching was the light of Christ. And so when the light is turned on your heart, do you run or do you repent? Let me say that again. When the light of the word is turned on in my life and your life, what is your natural response? Do you run like a cockroach or do you repent like a true believer? You know, the, the psalm says, search me, O God, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The Holy Spirit is a light. Christ is a light. The Word of God is a light, and it will search us. And so one of the first ways we know I'm believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is we don't run when the light comes on. We repent when the light comes on. Number two, Notice what else. Not only are you willingly responding to the light, but you willingly believe the evidence. And there is evidence for the gospel. First of all, there's light, and the gospel will shine its light into your heart, and you will be confronted with truth, and you'll either respond or you'll run. But then secondly, there is evidence. Now notice how Jesus puts the evidence that bears witness about him. Chapter 5, he continues after he says in verse 35 about John the Baptist, verse 36, he says, but the testimony that I have is even greater than John. So John brought light, and that's one piece of the evidence, but secondly, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What was the evidence then? It was the miracles of Jesus. Now, the miracles never convinced anyone to believe. They only bolstered the faith of those who believed. Jesus did multiple miracles. Many of them are recorded in the Gospel of John. They're also recorded in the other Gospels. And then we're told that not everything is recorded. If every miracle had been recorded, John tells us in chapter 20, there wouldn't be enough volumes to tell you about the miracles. The miracles were signs. They were meant to authenticate this is the Son of God. This is not a cult leader, a quack, someone that you must be leery of. This is somebody who has power. And some of the miracles that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John alone is he turns the water to wine and demonstrates he has power over nature. He calms the storm. Again, I have power over earth and wind and fire. He raises a man from the dead, Lazarus. And he says, I have power over life and death. There's nothing outside of my realm. He'll, in chapter 6, take food and manifest it and multiply it so that everyone has enough to eat. And he will show that he has the power over our sustenance, 
over what we need to survive. There is nothing He cannot do. And all of these miracles were the works that were meant to authenticate and to clearly show Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. These were the signs. Bishop J.C. Ryle, an old Anglican bishop, once said there's five beautiful things about the miracles of Jesus that ought to encourage us. He said, number one, their number. There were a whole lot of them, and there were. And so when we see how many there were, it wasn't that Jesus just did one miracle. He did many miracles. He didn't just do it once or twice for a crowd that was waiting. He did it constantly in the Gospels. Secondly, their greatness. These miracles were not mere hand tricks. He wasn't saying, now, let's guess this card and turn over this camel and I'll show you what I got. I mean, when you bring somebody back from the dead and they come out of a grave and they've got their clothes ripping off of them in the grave clothes, that's incredible. That is incredible. That is a feat that no one can mimic or no charlatan can create. Thirdly, they were always public. Ryle says, when you look at the miracles of Jesus, he never did them in secret. He did them so that other people could see. They were public. Whether it was in the colonnade where he made the paralyzed man walk, or whether it was the leader's son who was dying at a distance, there were always lots of people involved in these miracles. Just very quickly, two more things that I just thought were worthy. The character of the miracles. The character of the miracles. They were, they were bold. They were strong. They were righteous. They were nothing out of line with the character of God and His person and His attributes. And finally, they were applied to the senses. When you saw a miracle, your head, your heart, your nose, your eyes... <clears throat> they all saw the miracle that Jesus had performed. These were just evidential signs of what Christ had done. Are you willing to believe the evidence? Let me ask this. What miraculous signs has Christ done in your life? Now, I'm not saying that he's raised your neighbor from the dead. You might be glad your neighbor's gone, to be honest with you. You don't want him back, right? You'll pray about seeing him in heaven. Or, or maybe it's not that he multiplied the fish and the loaves in your life, but I'll guarantee you this, Christ did a real miracle in your life. If you're saved, the miracle that you went from death to life is incredible. Where were you before Jesus? What was your life like before Christ? Where would you be without him? If we can't point to the miraculous like they did, I'll tell you what we can do. We can point to the miraculous spiritually. There's evidence. How many of us in this room could give credo evidence? Christ saved, transformed me. How many of us could stand up right now and say, Christ transformed my life. It is real. I don't know where I would be. Amen? Well, these folks are saved. I don't know about the rest of you. But there's a few folk here. Now listen, that is supernatural. And just as Jesus was saying, these miracles show evidence to who I am and let the evidence be clear. I am the Christ. Let me go to number three. You willingly accept the Scripture. You willingly accept 
the Scripture. How do you know you are believing on the Lord Jesus Christ? You respond to the light. (laughs) You accept the evidence. Number three, you accept the Scriptures. Now notice what Jesus also says, defending Himself, pointing out His deity. He says in chapter 5, verse 37, And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not believe His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, verse 39, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. What Christ was saying there is the scriptures, if you will read them, and you will listen to them, and you will seek to understand them, they point to me. They point to Christ. Do you know that these Jewish people not only had miracles and they not only had John, they had the words of the Father that had been sent down to his prophets and his priests and his kings and his people, and all they had to do is objectively open the Scripture and read it. Read it. Did you know that all of Scripture points to Jesus? Did you know that? If you say, well, what's the book of Judges about? It's about Jesus. You say, what's Leviticus about? Jesus. If you said, Pastor, could you sum up the Bible in one word? I can. I would say redemption. Redemption means to buy. And what God does from the very beginning of Scripture is He buys back His creation that was taken from Him. Well, who does He buy it from, Pastor? The devil? Oh, no, no. He buys it back because His holiness and righteousness cannot stand sin. And so He makes payment. He makes clarity. He absolves our guilt. That's what God does. And the whole message of Scripture points to the ultimate revelation of God, Jesus Christ. You say, well, where's Jesus in the Old Testament? You want, you want to give me, I'll give you a little uh, freebie here. I had a, a dear mentor of mine who, who taught me how to read the Old Testament from a Christ-centered perspective. And these four things I'm about to give you, you just think about them and they're true. When you read the Old Testament, now I'm not talking about the New. Jesus is very clear in the New. He's clear in the Old, if you know what you're looking for. But first of all, there was always in the Old Testament the promise of the Messiah. So some passages... And some verses of Scripture will point and promise to a coming Messiah. And those are easy enough. But then there's some passages of Scripture and some stories that will paint a picture. We call that typology or or, um, illustration. Uh, But these portions of Scripture, maybe it's not so clear, but it paints for us a picture of who Jesus will be. He will be a king like David. He'll be greater than Moses the prophet. He will do more than Jonah ever did when Jonah preached. And so when we read these stories, we know it's either promising the Messiah or it's painting a picture through typology that he's coming. Let me give you another thing. It will either point, it'll either paint, it'll either promise, 
or it'll predict. It'll predict, and it will say things like, a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child, and that's predicting the coming of the Messiah. And when you read the Scripture, all through the Scripture, it has a need that it will meet in your life. There's not one page of Scripture that is new and improved. There's not one book that's better than another. It all is meant to meet a need in your life. Your life, even after you're saved, is like Swiss cheese. There's holes that God needs to fill. He needs to sanctify you in Christ Jesus. And so what the Scripture does is it fills the holes that are left after our salvation that need to be filled by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Every time you come under the reading of the Word, there's a need that you have. There's a fallen condition that is true in your life and my life. Today the need is assurance. I've told you that. This is so that you will have confidence and assurance. You see, the Scripture is speaking to you, meeting that need in your life. And when you hear it and you write down the four points, you're not just writing down four points. God is meeting this need in your heart so that the next time that you have a lack of faith, the next time you waver in your belief, you're going to recall the promises from the Father that speak of the Son, and you're going to say, but look at how I've responded to the light by the grace of God. Look at how I've, I've seen the evidence of God in my life. Look at how the Scriptures promise and point and meet that need about Him in my life. Isn't that good? You see, God will always meet our needs in Scripture. These are not sayings. They're not things you live by. It's God's breath speaking what you need in the moment. Last thing, last thing that's here in this passage of Scripture, you willingly possess love of God. How do you know you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the light that John brought, The light that Jesus brings, you respond to. You don't run, right? The evidence, the miraculous evidence that was there in the Gospels and that will be again and that sometimes happens in our life. Okay, you you understand that evidence and you see it. And by God's grace, you believe it. Thirdly, the Scriptures. When you read the Scriptures, you don't ignore the truth. You have a love for God's Word. You have a passion for God's Word. And can I just say, before I get to point four, if you're sitting out here and God's Word is confusing to you and boring to you and irrelevant to you, maybe, and I don't know your heart, maybe you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, maybe you're like these Jews that are being confronted in this text. You realize that they searched the Scripture? They studied the Scripture? It's horrifying when you think about it, how wrong they were. How they heard one thing and yet it was another. Could that be you? Could that be me? Could be. If we don't see Christ in the Scripture, and we don't see the relevance that it has for our life. Lastly, you willingly possess a love for God. Notice what Jesus then says at the very end here. Um, Here in the text, in, in verse... 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, all these things are so evident, and you still refuse to come. 
Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. In other words, that was not the mission of Christ. He did not want the applause of people. He did not need a crowd. He did not need a following. He was not about that. He was about truth. Now, indeed, he was sent to gather the sheep that the Father had given him, but he was not there to build an empire. He was not there to sell a lot of books. He says, I do not receive glory from people, verse 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. How does he know that? Well, he's God. He's Christ. He has infinite knowledge of men's hearts, but he says, you don't have the love of God within you, and he gives us one clue to that. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you receive him. Now, this was very common in this day. You can look this up, and I won't give you boring names, but there were many, many men who rose up during this time in Jewish history claiming to be the Messiah. In fact, there, there's interesting scholarly books, historical accounts, that many men were crucified for claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus was, of course, not the only person crucified, and he was not the only person crucified claiming to be the Messiah. There were many revolutionary young men who gave their life falsely claiming to be Israel's salvation. This is very well documented. Now, you don't hear their names and you don't know who they are because they were not the Messiah. You know Jesus, and he made such a wake upon history that we name the before and the after according to him in our years. And we mention his name and we celebrate a supposed birthday and a date of resurrection. The wake of Christ was so big and overwhelming. It must have been something to set him apart from all the other people that were executed claiming to be the Messiah. But Christ, in his wisdom, says, look, you're willing to accept all these people that rise up and claim to, to be a god, they claim to be a leader, and you just blindly follow them. But I come in my Father's name, doing my Father's will, never veering from my Father, producing all this evidence, and you will not listen to me. Because the heart is hard. It is deceitful. It is desperately wicked. Men love darkness rather than light. And so they will run from the darkness of God for foolish things. If you've ever wondered why do people join cults, it's not because they're stupid. It's because they're running from God. Let me tell you something. There's two religions in this world, and I mean only two. Two. You ready? Every cult Every world religion, everything falls under these two categories. There is the religion of man, which is simply this. It is human achievement. There is the religion of human achievement. Pray five times a day. Go on a pilgrimage. Do this, do that. Work your way to heaven. Now, that's one religion. And then there's the religion of divine accomplishment. That's true Christianity. You see, that religion says that you cannot achieve, but God did achieve. And men don't want that. They want to achieve themselves. 
And so they'll run to a cult and they'll run to an intruder and a marauder and anyone else besides ultimately running to truth. And that's what he's saying here in verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You're not interested in God. You're not interested in worshiping God, giving glory to God. You're interested in glory for yourself. You're interested in human achievement. You love, but you don't love God. You love yourself. And this is the problem. How do you know that you're believing on the Lord Jesus Christ? You go from worrying about pleasing other people to worrying about serving and worshiping and pleasing your heavenly Father, God. He so radically transforms your life, you are no longer living for other people. You are no longer worried about what they can give to you. You're no longer worried about what they can take from you. And you're not worried about what they can do for you. You serve one. And your object, your aim in life is not to get glory for yourself. It is not to put glory in other human beings. It is to glorify God. That's why we exist, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is how you know that you love God, because there's been such a transformation that God has put in your heart. He has justified you and declared you righteous, and the love of God is now within you. So take those four. Take those four pieces of evidence that Jesus gives us in this text. Are you believing on the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have that assurance? I'm responding to the light. Very good. Now, we don't always respond like we should, but is there any evidence that you're responding to the light? Well, I'm believing the evidence. The evidence is clear. I've seen the wonder-working power of God in my life. That's good. What about the Scriptures? Do you love them? Do you read them? Do you try to obey them? Is it your life? that is dictated by the Word of God, that's good. We don't always do what we should, but there should be a pattern of walking in that direction. Finally, is the love of God there? Do you live your life for the love of God? This is how we know we've believed on the one true God, Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh to save us from our sin. Isn't that good news? Amen. That's where my hope is. It's built on nothing less. Would you pray with us? Father, we thank you for the word of the Lord that has directed us today and guided us in truth. I pray that I have presented it clearly as I ought. I pray that I have not muddled in any sense the simplicity of your word. I pray that these people have heard it. Lord, may there not be one person who's just like these Jewish leaders sitting here today or listening on the internet who says, yeah, I've read it, I've heard it, but yet their heart has not been so changed by the power of God. Would you change them? Would you save them? Lord, may we be ever more faithful to trust in what you have said and to believe on who you are. And may that give us assurance and faith and courage to walk out of here and live for you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.